As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. As always, I'm Tim Wyatt and I'm joined by my dad, John Wyatt. Hi, Dad. Hi, Tim. How are you doing? Not too bad, thank you. Um... Today we're going to try and pick up a few more of our questions from listeners. Uh, quick reminder, we, we, we enjoy reading your emails, uh, questions, feedback, disagreements, so please do keep those coming in. Molad, M-O-L-A-D, at premier.org.uk, or if you're on Twitter, or X, as I believe that we should now call it, um, you can message me. I'm at T-S-Y-A-T-T. W-Y-A-T-T. Um, but we've had a question coming in from a listener called David, um, uh, who listened to our recent episode about baby loss and in particular the second part discussing um, abortion here in the UK. And he says this, I was puzzled by your comment where you said of the narrative, it's my body and I'll do as I want, as described it as a myth. If I understand you correctly, you explain that the high abortion rates were having more to do with social pressure, for example, typically from unsupportive partners. However, in setting the scene for the podcast, we hear that the most typical scenario for increased abortion rates is not, as might previously be thought, teenage pregnancies and single mothers, but it's rather women in their 20s who are typically in long-term stable relationships and who want sex but don't want a baby yet, for example, until they turn into their 30s. If one in three women will have abortions, how can this be a myth? Yeah, so, uh, well, I maybe I need to row back a bit from... <laughs> from what I said last time, because, well, let me unpack a bit what I what I meant by saying that it was a myth. I think it's easy to have a caricature that says, you know, so many women are basically just irresponsible um, and they understand uh, the risks of of sex, um, and but when they discover they're pregnant, they just wish to uh, get rid of the baby because it's a free choice, because it's my body and I can do whatever I like. And um, I I think, although that must happen sometimes, I I don't think that that is the common kind of narrative. Uh, And it's certainly what I hear fed back from those counsellors who who on a regular basis talk to women with unplanned pregnancy and who are agonizing about whether or not to continue the pregnancy, uh, is that the kind of narrative they feel is is that they just don't have a choice. Although they understand in theory 
I could continue with this pregnancy. In reality, it is simply unrealistic or inconceivable. And and the sort of reasons include things like it would uh I'm not ready to be a parent. I haven't got the so the appropriate kind of maturity. You know, I have very high ideals of what a of how I should be as a parent and now is not the right time for it. Uh, financially, it's I'm just at the wrong time. I, I understand that having a, a child is incredibly expensive. And at the moment, I, I'm financially unstable. So if I did have a child, that means that the child would have undergo real financial hardship because I'm not ready. And very often it is a relational thing. I mean, as was said, many women are in a long-term stable relationship, but either explicitly or implicitly, they get the message from their partner that they don't want to have this baby. They're not ready to be a father. And so the woman, again, is, is this agonizing decision, you know, do I go ahead and have the baby and jeopardize my relationship, maybe cause long-term bitterness or relationship breakdown? You know, do I vote for my partner or do I vote for a baby? So, so often I think women feel that, that, that everything is conspiring against them uh, in order to have um, a child. So, so they know in theory that they have a choice. But I think, therefore, that this kind of rhetoric, my body, my choice, massively oversimplifies what is, in reality, a deeply complex and difficult situation. It's quite interesting to think why. Why is becoming a parent so so difficult in, in 2023? Hmm. Yeah, and there's certainly a challenge there, I think, for any Christians involved in anti-abortion activism to say the, the flip side of trying to make it harder for women to have an abortion, I believe, is that you need to be simultaneously working to make it easier for women to raise families. And that might look like in your particular context, you know, what is the housing situation like? You know, what are the are there sufficient government benefits and welfare system to support poorer women um, uh, to have another child? You know, is there a social care system? Is there a community health care system? You know, all these things need to be in place that would um, have the effect of making it much, giving women more of a real sense that they have a real choice between abortion or or keeping the child yeah and, and so i think the wider context is that uh, philosophers and thinkers often you know prize the principle of autonomy um this free unfettered choice to do whatever i feel is the right um but it, it that's what's the myth um because th- this is fine sitting from the philosopher's chair but but in reality, when human beings make painful and difficult choices, it, it's uh, weighing all the social, personal, emotional uh, and practical issues, as well as the morality of, of what is right and wrong. And so I think the reality is that many women choose abortion with a very heavy heart. Um, mm. they, would, they would love to be a parent. They would love to, um, to experience... Uh, all that they they don't intuitively feel abortion is a good thing but they feel i don't have a choice it's really the only option the only rational reasonable option and i think sometimes christians in the pro-life movement spend too much time responding to or attacking or becoming the antagonist of 
the quite kind of extreme uh kind of i don't know what language to use it kind of hyper feminist position you know it's my body i'll do what i want it's no different to you know choosing to remove a kidney um you know the the state should have absolutely no regulation or limits on on how i how i terminate my pregnancy this kind of thing you know there's no there's no stigma there's no shame blah 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 blah. you know that 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 perspective certainly exists but my instinct and i think surveys back this up is that that's actually fairly rare and that the kind of median person certainly in the uk and i suspect probably also in the us and other parts of the western world believes that abortion should be legal should be safe but also should be rare and and they don't honestly believe that um aborting a fetus is the equivalent to you know having a gallbladder out or or something like that it's they understand even if they might not see the unborn child having the same moral dignity and humanhood personhood that we as christians might ascribe to it i think they understand intuitively that the consequences of aborting uh pregnancy are orders of magnitude greater emotional psychological physical familial than they are in having your gallbladder out or, or doing any other kind of obviously kind of uh self autonomizing uh, medical procedure and so i think actually it's important as you say that that we as christians engage with where people actually are at not where we think they're at or where the kind of loudest pro-abortion cheerleaders would like to to say people are at absolutely and and i think again it comes back to a slogan that i've used many times before but that is whenever as christians we say that something is wrong we immediately have to go and say that here is a better way and so how can we make the better way of continuing with the pregnancy with the right kind of uh, psychological, emotional, practical, economic, social support. Uh, how can we make that? How is how can the Christian community m- make that more attractive, more more realistic? And and I long for greater practical action from the churches. You know, I, I it saddens me that so often the voice we hear in the public domain is is often this negative uh, voice that says this is bad, this is wrong. This is destructive. This is damaging lives. It's damaging women. Instead of, look, here is a better way. And this is the way Christians are supporting, encouraging, and and, and making this a reality. Wouldn't it be wonderful if our churches were seen as the place that a woman with an unplanned pregnancy, the woman with a a single, unsupported uh, child who's, who's been abandoned by a partner, wouldn't it be wonderful if the church was the obvious place that people should turn to hmm. and just last thing on this one uh the listener david who um who sent us a question thank you for sending that in it's been a really helpful bit of clarification he also said it helpfully pointed out this interesting website i've not come across before um which is a uk website called my body my life uh, my body hyphen my life.org and it just it just intrigued me um dad because it's very really similar to what, what you were saying at, at the end of our conversation that you would you wish that you know more there was a space for more women to share their abortion stories and intriguingly here is a website doing exactly that but coming from the other perspective um you know these are people who are pro-abortion or at least pro that it being an option um and and they believe that there is too much stigma around it um and so they've got a a website where people can submit their stories and you can read stories of, of people 
um, from having having abortions um, as they quote work to remove the stigma around abortion. So it just it kind of intrigued me that there was someone who kind of landed on a similar uh, project or a similar um, uh, solution, but from a very different end of the spectrum. Yeah, well, it's good that there is. We desperately need to talk about this and to have a, a forum in which people can share. Um, their own honest uh, story. And it is interesting, isn't it? In, in this age of postmodernism and so on, the one thing that you can never uh, deny someone is the right to tell their own story. Even, mm. even if you feel their story is unacceptable and it doesn't, it's irrational and I don't agree with your story, uh, you have the right to tell your story and no one has the right to tell you, no, you're not allowed to share your story. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom Wright's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help us keep these resources and podcasts like Ask N.T. Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. That's premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. Thank you. You're listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Good. All right. Well, shall we move on to another issue? Um, this was actually a news story that you spotted and, and sent me. Uh, it's in um, the magazine or the website wired.com. We'll put a link in the podcast description. The headline is this. Millions of workers are training AI models for pennies. From the Philippines to Colombia, low-paid workers label trading data for AI models used by the likes of Amazon, Facebook, Google, and Microsoft. And it's a, it's a story about uh, one of the main characters is a woman called Oscarina Fuentes from Venezuela, which, as people know, has been stuck in this kind of economic political crisis. Inflation has hit 800%. And she um, found out through a friend about a, an Australian data services company that would hire her to work online to basically do uh, tra tag training data for AI algorithms. So that's things like, you know, telling what which one of these five pictures is a car, labeling that one or or um, commenting on, you know, which of these is a more accurate AI-generated summary of something, um, which is the kind of hidden part of how all of these AI models like ChatGPT that we become familiar with work. And the story um, basically explains that actually a large part, the kind of backbone of a lot of that training of these AI models is relies on incredibly low-paid people from the developing world, places like East Africa, Venezuela, the Philippines, India, even refugee camps, 
where people are being paid a few cents each for a single task on a platform. They've got no long-term job security. They have to be available to work any hour of the day, 24 hours a day. And they might, um, at best, barely scrape together a few hundred dollars a month. What, what, why did you find this story interesting? What jumped out at it to you? Yeah, no, I, I think it's it's tragic, really, because you know it's often said that there are parallels between the uh, old-fashioned mining industry uh, extracting you know metals and ore out of the earth, and the new-fangled industry of data mining, data extraction, and and just as old-fashioned mining has so often it, uh, depended on exploitation of incredibly poorly paid workers in places like the Democratic Republic of Congo uh, and, and other other low resource countries around the world um, and, and and often child labor or exploited uh, extremely poor people are are mining the you know the rare metals which we need in our smartphones and so on uh, and being exploited in the process so the same pattern is being uh, repeated when it comes to data analysis uh, and incredibly rich uh, companies, commercial companies, mainly in the West, are employing uh, in what has to be said is an exploitative way, uh, extremely cheap weight labor in the same countries uh, to do often extremely, not only numbingly repetitive and mindless, but sometimes these people are watching deeply disturbing videos, for instance, in content moderation, mm. or they may be being employed to train AI models like ChatGPT, and and they have to therefore um, uh, respond to what are often extremely unpleasant comments which these models create, which are then all carefully moderated. So, so these people are doing the work, so we don't have to. So, so when we go on to chat GPT, it's, it's, it's always very nice and friendly and anodyne. And that's because you know, thousands of hours have been spent, often at very poor rates, by human beings trying to uh, moderate and, and uh, remove and minimize uh, unacceptable content from these models. But hang on a second. I mean, to put on my big business hat for a second, couldn't you argue that actually, from another perspective, this is a positive example of how digital technology can um, transform people's economic outlook? Because you know, a lot of these people in in slums or in, in the in the in the developing world, um, they would otherwise maybe have to go and you know sell things on the street or be sucked into genuinely kind of dangerous, exploitative physical labour, um, and instead because of the the connectivity of the internet, they can sit on a laptop at home uh, in safety and tap things on a keyboard. And in, in, and in return, they are paid for their work. Admittedly, not very much money, but it goes a lot further in, in that country than it would here in the West. Isn't that a good news story? Isn't that about actually about how the digital revolution and our new industrial revolution is is actually creating jobs for poorer people that aren't as you know they don't destroy their bodies by hacking rock out of the earth and they're not uh, breathing in disgusting dirty air or or whatever else they're just sitting at a computer in in quiet comfort and safety tapping at a screen well that's the nice sort of that's the spin it's just there's a there's a, a terrible disconnect between that wonderful spin and and the harsh reality, which which you get in the Wired magazine we, we, uh, article, we, we'll we'll link to it in the chat. But but this this lady who's who's taken as, as an example, 
Fuentes, uh, typically an hour and a half of work will bring in one dollar. Uh, but actually, sometimes Fuentes works on a laptop from her bed, glued to her computer for over 18 hours a day because there, there is a, a drying up in the tasks and she's just trying to get the first pick of tasks. The only way she can do that. Can you imagine spending 18 hours on your laptop because you daren't miss mm. this task, which is going to come and give you the grand total of a dollar for, a, for an hour's and a half's work? You know? Now, technically, people say, well, isn't that great? I mean, a dollar, that's, but it, you know, it, it's just not right that that is funding billionaires, you know, the people who are running the tech industry. The coders, you know, who are making this software are earning hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Um, yeah. And, and it, it's, it's this extraordinarily exploitative inequality. The very inequality is, is damaging. When you have that kind of gradient of 100,000 times between what the top coders are earning and what uh, the, the people who are doing these digital tasks in poor countries, you know, that just can't be right. I mean, yeah. I just compare that with the, with the Old Testament concept of, you know, focusing on widows and orphans and aliens, and therefore that the, um, the, the people who are sowing the fields and, and harvesting the fields had to leave uh, areas for gleaning mm. and allow the widows uh, to come and, 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 obtain food for free um because it's a major it was... kind of plot point in the book of ruth isn't it and exactly we talked about that on a printer episode that that without that ruth wouldn't have been able to survive absolutely and um so so yes the idea that that there should be provision made for people who are absolutely the bottom of the heap and that it that the challenge is for just and righteous employment practices and the possibility of exploitation this poor woman desperate to survive spending 18 hours glued to a laptop yeah that can't be right mm. there's another case they quote in the wide piece a, a man called McMain, who's just 18 from pakistan who said he actually started this work at 15 using a family member's id to get around the kind of child labor uh, regulations and he works um on a laptop from 8am to 6pm and then there's another shift from 2am to 6am every day. He says, I need to stick to these platforms at all times so that I don't lose work, but he struggles to earn more than $50 a month. And he says he's only compensated for the time actually spent entering details on the platform, which massively underestimates his labour. For instance, a social media related task may pay a dollar or two per hour, but the fee doesn't account for the additional research time spent online. Quote, one needs to work five or six hours to complete what effectively amounts to an hour of real-time work, all to earn $2. In my point of view, it is digital slavery. Yeah, and so I, I, it's worth remembering that, you know, when we go on to chat GPT uh, or use these other wonderful uh, generative AI models, are we aware of the digital slavery that some people around the world have contributed. And and what do we do with this knowledge? I mean, this is where there's a democratic deficit, a way of saying we don't want to do that. You know what? We, we prepared to be, pay more 
for an AI service if we knew that it had been done in a generally, genuinely honourable and equitable way, if it had been trained and developed from the ground up, because we believe that this is important and we're prepared to put our money where our mouth is. Hmm. And it's particularly egregious, as you said earlier, because we know that most of the companies, the end users of this data, are some of the are literally the richest corporations to have ever existed. You know, Apple has a as a sitting on a mountain of about a hundred billion dollars in cash just sitting there in its bank account. It doesn't really have anything to do with it because it's making so much money from selling iPhones and MacBooks and Apple TV subscriptions and whatever else. And and that's equally true of Google, you know, which is a just a machine for but generating revenue through mostly through its advertising businesses. Like these are incredibly wealthy companies that if they wanted to double, treble, quadruple the wages of their kind of irregular workforce in the developing world, it would make no dent really on their long term profit margins. So there really is no excuse, in my view. Absolutely. And, and you know, it, it reminds me forcefully, I've just been reading recently the passages in Revelation, which talks about, it's really, Revelation is a tale of two cities. Uh, you know, this happened before Dickens. And on the one <laughs> hand, you've got Babylon. and the other hand, you've got the New Jerusalem. And Babylon is astonishingly wealthy. It is, but it is built on extortion. I mean, the, the whole point in Revelation of why Babylon is ultimately under God's judgment is because it is that wealth, that obscene wealth that Babylon represents, which of course was actually a picture of Rome. It was code for for uh, Rome and the Roman Empire was built on this level of exploitation of slaves and, and of poor people and so on. And And so, you know, here's the new Babylon uh, the trouble is we're all we're all in some way uh involved we're all um affected and and some way complicit with mm. with the new babylon yeah um this kind of comes in the context uh, we talked about this briefly before but here in the uk there's just finished a big ai safety summit um held at bletchley park which was famously the the location of the the code breakers in World War Two, who led by well, among them Alan Turing, who helped kind of develop the world's first computers to crack the the Germans' Enigma code um, and help win the war. Um, and this has been a big push by the UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak to try and get big countries to sit down and agree kind of basic rules and regulations about how we're going to keep AI developments so that they are safe. Um, have you been following this much do you have any hope or, or kind of optimism that these kind of international diplomatic efforts might actually kind of rein in some of the tech companies that are furiously developing this capability i'm very conflicted on this i mean it's it was a stroke of genius uh you know uh, the optics to do it at bletchley park because as you say bletchley has this almost sacred reputation as mm-hmm the home of the origins of computing uh, in many ways and and the place where Alan Turing and others cracked the Enigma code, which had such a significance for the Allies in in World War II. So to actually do it on this hallowed site. Interestingly, I think what's been happening is that the UK has been feeling incredibly sidelined from Mm. the global conversation on AI because ever since it left the EU. I mean, again, it was an unanticipated side effects of Brexit because 
the EU has plays a very powerful role in global politics on digital technology. And, and a very good example is GDPR, uh, which was invented and created by the EU as a way of controlling uh, people's rights of privacy, data control, and so on. And grudgingly, the entire rest of the world, particularly all the American big tech giants, have had to adopt this American regulation, even the, this European regulation, even though they hate it because mm. it's very restrictive. But, you know, they had no choice. If the whole of Europe was going to insist on this, they couldn't end up with two versions of the technology, one for Europe and one for the rest of the world. And so they basically, Europe was able to enforce a global standard. And previously, Britain played a very big role within the EU and in this area. But following Brexit, uh, Britain is out in the cold. So the three big blocks are America, China and Europe. And Britain is nowhere. So, so this was an attempt to try and say, we're still here. We're, we're still important. Pay you know, attention to and, us. <laughs> pay attention to us. That's right. We actually we'll do remind... have a tech sector. Yeah, yeah. And it, we used to be very important in the Second World War. So, <laughs> so um, it's uh, it was a you know, and I'm I'm probably being overly cynical. I I think there was there is a genuine desire to try to bring people together, um, but I think. There are lots of concerns that so many of the people who turned up were, were the people who are already uh, running the industry. Um, and and uh, a lot of what Bletchley Park came out of could, could be, if you're being cynical, could be said to, you know, just we're, we're in, in favour of motherhood and apple pie. You know, it's mm. uh, human rights, transparency, explainability, fairness, accountability, regulation, safety, human oversight, ethics, privacy, you know. And who wouldn't be in favour of all those things? The problem is how you turn these warm, well-meaning words into some kind of licensing which um, which really has a, a fight. And actually, it's interesting, there is a very serious division and debate going on now about AI safety. Everyone's agreed that we want to try and restrict the possibilities of these new, very, very powerful AI models from being used for harm. But there are two composing vi competing visions. One, which most of the big tech companies are saying is, we want to be regulated. Please, sir, we want to be regulated. Please regulate us, sir. And they're going to the politicians and demanding and requesting uh, rights, but uh, rules to regulate them. But of course, we're going to write the rules to help you, sir, because we're the only ones who actually understand how this works, sir. So we're going to write your rules and then we'll show you that we're following the rules that we've written for you. Um, and... Uh, a lot of people are what's now being called regulatory capture, that the big tech companies have actually captured the politicians because of their technical prowess and also because of the amount of lobbying spend that they're spending yeah. uh, to, to make their influence. So the other view is, is uh, a smaller group of, of open source uh, enthusiasts who are saying, what we've got to do, the only way to make this safe is to release it completely into the wild 
and and make it available and open for everybody to use. And that way, all the tech community will be taken apart, play with it, work out what's dangerous and come up with safety rules. Um, and the other side is saying, no, 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 that's incredibly dangerous. If you just release it in the wild, you're inviting bad people hmm. to... Um, so it's interesting, there are two quite competing visions here of the right way forward. And uh, it's almost like you can't have both, and yet they're both there. Hmm. They're both happening at the same time. I don't know which one's going to win. And in truth, the the reason the big companies don't want to open up their models for scrutiny is because they don't want to have to share the technology because they see this as an inflection point. This is like where we were in the late 1990s when there are a number of people trying to crack the problem of internet search. And Google won that race by creating the best product and turned itself into the second wealthiest company in history as a result through its dominance of search. And there is a hope and expectation that AI will be the next kind of breakthrough transformational product. product. And so whichever company ends up kind of winning the race to, to genuine working transformational AI thinks it could unlock trillions of dollars in future value. And they'll be damned if they let anyone else copy and see the inner workings of their complex algorithm. Let's be honest, it's not. That's, that's really what's lying behind this, as well as maybe some genuine fears around safety. Well, and it's and this is you know it's that old saw, isn't it? Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And and given the the billions of dollars that are resting on this, uh, it's not surprising that there is you know there's a degree of, uh, of you know corruption. Maybe a strong word, but it's it's uh, it's conflicts of interest and and. Um, so there is a uh, it's a fascinating point in in history but it it's really unclear which way this is going to go. So so what is being proposed by the regulators is that basically producing one of these new AI models should be like you know producing an airplane for for flight, it, it cannot be released until it has gone through a very rigorous certification process, which means that highly skilled computer scientists employed by the government uh, get the model before release and take it apart and uh, test it, flight test it, just like they would do a, an aircraft. Uh, and, it, and before it's certified and has the stamp of approval, it can't be released uh, in, into general lease. But of course, the other voices and the tech giants are saying, if you make this too onerous, if you make this too difficult and, and delay us in getting this wonderful stuff out, of course, you're just handing to our competitors. It will mean, you know, and particularly to China, uh, we'll regulate ourselves out of existence. Meanwhile, China will get on. Hmm. And, and so um, a very confused and confusing picture and, and at the moment, it's hard to see what, uh, what the right way forward is. Um, but I, I, I think we need to, to ask the question, how can this technology be, be taken away from the pursuit of profit mm-hmm. and, and actually used for human flourishing? How, how can we create AI which actually helps human beings to become more virtuous 
uh, instead of exploiting often the very negative ca- uh, aspects of our of our character, the fallenness, you know, it seems like social media just has this effect, doesn't it, of exacerbating and amplifying human frailty mm. and, and, uh, and hatred and um, division and so on. So we want the reverse. We want technology which actually suppresses uh, this fallen human nature and which in, instead encourages us to, to behave in a responsible way, to, to be thoughtful, to be caring, to, compassion, to be compassionate, to spend more time in face-to-face uh, relationships and less time staring at our screens. Is, is this a pipe dream? Is this just ridiculous? Or would it be possible to imagine technology which was actually genuinely for human good? Hmm. And I feel quite convicted on this one because the cynical journalist part of me says you know there is no realistic likelihood that that the world is going to be able to get a handle on this and and restrain these immensely wealthy and powerful companies that are pursuing this with all their might but the other heart of me says you know think about our our recent episode on the fall you know we talked before about the systemic structural corrupting nature of of sinfulness and that we we went through our first kind of generation you know of the internet and social media and it was all mostly done with really good intent and has produced a lot of bitter fruit, unintentional bitter fruit that we discussed many times on the show. And I would love for us to say, rather than just repeat that mistake with our general artificial intelligence kind of era season, I would love for us to try a different way. I don't really know if regulation of the type you described is realistic or could work, but it seems to me, um, you know, if you do the same thing twice and expect different results, it's definition of insanity. You know, we've we've tried the kind of self-regulation. Let's let the tech companies do it themselves. You know, fail fast, fail often, move fast, break things, and that gave us you know some horrendous, horrendous things. It unleashed, as you say, some of the worst parts of human nature. It amplified some of our most corrupting, divisive, broken, harmful parts of us. Um, I would love for us to try a different way this time round when the stakes might even be, as people say, so much higher with what a, a harmful, destructive AI model could do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm with you. And I think, uh, you know, this is where, from a Christian perspective, there is reason for hope. So, yes, you know, we take the fall seriously. Yes, there is uh, a profound evil here, which can be not that the technology is evil, but that it somehow amplifies and encourages and can stimulate human evil but the story doesn't stop there the the story the grand narrative goes on to redemption and says you know the power of life the power of forgiveness the power of truth the power of goodness and above all the power revealed paradoxically in the cross of christ is greater than evil it's greater than the fall there is a way forward and so you know theologically i what I'm praying for is is a, a sense of how do we ground that? What does redeeming technology actually look like? What does redeeming AI, uh, bringing it back out of uh, the territory of 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 evil and using it for the for good, for the common good, for the good of humankind, for the and particularly for vulnerable people? So instead of exploiting the people in in Africa and Colombia and, and elsewhere, technology is genuinely uh, empowering them 
mm. and uh, giving them uh, a greater uh, dignity, a greater value, a, a, a greater under level of humanity. Amen to all of that. Um, seems like a neat place to finish um, okay. thanks very much for those who've been sending in questions please do continue um, or even if it's just to send us a link or for a new story or a development in technology or science you'd like us to respond to that's really helpful um, you can email molad m-o-l-a-d at premier.org.uk uh, don't forget to look at dad's website johnwyatt.com lots of interesting things to read listen to and watch um, and we'll be back next week with another episode but until then bye bye and death a podcast from premier unbelievable